You're probably wondering why you're looking at me this, this morning, um, but uh, in a recent uh, events in the U.S. and Canada have necessitated today's message in solidarity with other like-minded Bible-believing uh, churches. You know, it's not an overstatement to say that we are facing a moral crisis in our world because our world has turned its back on God and rejected His will and right as our creator to define for us how we are to live. And as a result, sexual morality has been turned on its head as what the Bible defines as sin is not only defended as good and celebrated, but those who choose uh, to uphold biblical standards are now facing criminalization. And uh, that's the reason why we're going to have this special Sunday here today. Let me make sure that my clicker is working here. How come I can't get this going here? Turn it on, man. Yeah. Is, is it not on? It's the side, right? No. Okay. Wait. It's the side that has the power thing. Here. Oh, hey, hey, hey. How about hey. that? Huh? How about that? Huh? Look at that, huh? Okay. I hate this thing. Anyways... <laughs> In case, in case you haven't heard, on January 7th, that which is just earlier this week, the House of Commons of Canada passed Bill C-4, which is essentially a ban against conversion therapy. Now you might be thinking to yourself, what is conversion therapy? Does that mean like Christian conversion? Well, the bill itself defines uh, conversion therapy this way, here's a definition that's on the screen for you. This is from the actual bill itself. In, in sections um, 320.102 to 320.104, conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to, and here's what it's designed to, A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, B, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, C, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. D, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. E, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity or F, Repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. So if you haven't caught on by now, conversion therapy is is meant to address the issue of of trying to convert someone from homosexuality to heterosexuality. Now, here's what's found in the preamble of the bill. It says this. This is from the bill itself. Okay. Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society, because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation. Gender identity and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality Cisgender, gender identity, 
and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. Okay, that's from the, the bill itself. The legislation then goes on to state that anyone who knowingly causes another person to go through conversion therapy is committing a crime that is punishable by up to five years in prison. Now listen, I need to state right up front, okay, so that there's no misunderstanding, that we at Emmanuel Bible Church, and in solidarity with many Christian churches, don't believe that the answer to homosexuality is conversion therapy. Okay, so let me just say that right, right off the bat. Okay, so we're not defending a psychological model of conversion therapy. We certainly don't believe that any form of psychological manipulation can bring about any real change at the heart level. No, we believe in the power of the gospel and sanctification as the only real answer to conquer sin and bring about lasting change. But the way that this legislation is worded, it won't just affect a formal therapeutic setting, you know, like a psychologist to, you know, patient on a couch somewhere, okay? It will certainly affect the church as well. Now, why do I say that? Because under this legislation, a person who is struggling with same-sex attraction and wants to change can't even legally consent to get help for it. You can't even legally consent. So put it in the context of a conversation here at Emmanuel Bible Church, right? Let's say such a scenario uh, were to arise, though, on the other, you know, in Canada, in another country, and the pastor were to help one of his members right? He could be in violation of the law, which is punishable by up to five years in prison. So the guy's struggling with same-sex attraction, goes to his pastor, and he says, listen, I'm struggling with this. I know it's sin, and I want help. And so as a pastor in Canada, he says, okay, here, let me talk you through this. That is now illegal, and he can go to prison for that. So think about it. A pastor can go to prison in Canada for helping one of his members fight against sin and live out his Christian faith. Well, if that's uh, startling to you, and if it's not, it should be, here's the other shoe to drop. It's not confined to Canada. It's here in the U.S. as well. The West Lafayette City Council in Indiana is likewise proposing Ordinance 3121, which is also a conversion therapy ban for unlicensed counselors as they counsel minors. Now, unlicensed counselor, that's, that's me, that's NAM, that's most pastors in the United States. And it defines uh, conversion therapy as, quote, any practices or treatments that seek to change an individual sexual orientation or gender identity and counseling as techniques used to help individuals make decisions relating to personal growth, vocational, family, and other interpersonal concerns. Well, that's what pastors do, isn't it? Isn't that our job description as, as pastors? 
Now, again, the implication for the church is that any kind of biblical counseling that includes helping those in their their struggles against same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, even professing Christian minors, this is a bill that targets counseling against minors, such persons, meaning your pastors or any pastor, uh, are subject to a $1,000 per day fine. Again, consent has been thrown out the window here, as in the case of the Canadian law. But unlike Bill C-4, this has yet to be signed into law, and we pray that it never will be. There's actually a website you could sign a petition against this. So in solidarity with other Bible-believing churches, we are preaching unapologetically today on what the Bible teaches concerning sexual morality. Now, I say that, not so that we could bash people on the head with it and get all crazy angry this morning and, you know, um, talk about how sinful all this stuff is. But so that we're, we're doing this so that God gets his say in a day where contrary voices are prevailing. So what I want to do with you here this morning is, one, talk about God's design in creation because we need to understand what the biblical model is before we could talk about what it isn't. Two, we're gonna talk about rebellion against God's design. And three, we're gonna talk about the the solution. So that's what we're gonna do here this morning. Let's just take a brief moment to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Heavenly Father, as we open the word, we pray that uh, you would use it uh, to instruct, to edify, uh, to challenge. Maybe there are some that are here this morning who have never heard Uh, what the Bible says about sexual morality. He's only heard what our culture has been preaching from the hilltops. And we pray, Lord, that today we would all unite around the biblical message and we would stand firm on it. Not be afraid of what people think about us today. Not to fear persecution, because it's here. But we pray that we would stand firm on our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and know that it is better to live for Christ than to stand in solidarity with the world that hates him. So we pray for your blessing on this time now as we look in these, these things, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bible to uh, Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one, we're gonna start where we should start, right at the beginning. Genesis chapter one, verse 27, a verse that all of you, I, I imagine, are somewhat familiar with. In Genesis one twenty-seven. In the creation account, we read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The the book of Genesis uh, presents God as the creator of all things, including human beings. He's created the world. He's created everything in it. But what sets apart human beings from every other being that God created. Well, it's stated right here that mankind is created in his own image. Now, the way that this, is, uh, that the, this verse is structured in the Hebrew Bible, it's what we call a chiasm, it's meant to put the focus on the divine image itself. That's what you're supposed to hone in on, the divine image. So putting aside the discussion of what it means 
to be created in God's image. That's a whole theological discussion that's not relevant for our discussion here today. I want you to notice that the singular man here is specified as them, man and them. And, and the them is two distinctly sexual beings, male and female. Now, these two terms that are used are the gender-specific terms for males and females, so that there isn't any ambiguity about what is meant, that God created man in his image, and that image is born in males and females. God created man in his own image, and that image, the image of God, is equally shared in both men and women. It's not like men are 50% of the image, women are the other 50, and together they make No, they're, they're equally created in the image of God, but there's a, complementary, a complementarity to male and female, um, as we're going to talk about in just a second. They're complementary sexes as men and women. Well, what implication does this have? Well, Kenneth Matthews, in his fine two-volume commentary on Genesis, he rightly sees this connection when he says this. He says, quote, Although male and female hold in common the same unique God-given status as image bearers, there is an inherent distinction within the human family. Now listen to what he says. This is truth. By virtue of their different sexual roles, and this implies that other distinctions are present, unquote. Well, let's see how this unfolds, this distinction, uh, in the subsequent verses in Genesis. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, just a, a chapter later, in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now I want you to notice something right off the bat here. Notice that Genesis 2.18 doesn't say that Eve merely functions as Adam's helper. That's not what the verse says. But that she was created for the purpose of helping Adam. We could define a helper, by the way, then, as someone simply who just gives aid and or support. And, you know, the last part of this verse, I will make him a helper fit for him. Well, what does that mean? What, what does that mean? Well, one, it means that when God created Eve, he specifically had in mind for her to be Adam's helper. And number two, that she would be a helper that was equal to and adequate to Adam. So as you put this together, this one verse teaches us that Eve was created as a helper to Adam. Now that talks about a subordinate role, not a subordinate person, a subordinate role, but that she was in no way inferior to him, equality. So already we're starting to see roles emerge from gender. That there is a subordinate role. Adam is going to play the head role. She's going to play a subordinate role as his helper. But she's in no way inferior to her. She is equally made in the image of God. So already we're able to see that the difference in gender 
results in distinction in the roles that they were created to function in. So let's say this up front so that there's no misunderstanding whatsoever. The Bible teaches that God created human beings as male and female and that there are role distinctions embedded into one's gender. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how you identify yourself as male or female. I'm going to identify as a female today. I'm going to identify as a male. It doesn't matter all of that. God determines your gender for you as your creator. He's the one that determines it, not us. That may not be popular with our culture today, but you know what? It's what the Bible has been teaching for thousands of years. Okay, This isn't anything new. This isn't a, a, a brand new doctrine in Christianity. This is what Christianity has always taught in Judaism even before that. Let's turn to Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This comment appears, if you recall, right after God did a quick surgery on Adam. You remember that? He even gives us the, you know, the procedure. He puts him to sleep, right? Anesthesia, and then he gets to work. And uh, he, he uh, forms Eve from one of his ribs. You remember that? Causing Adam to exclaim this. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is verse 22. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, Adam celebrated the fact that finally, after he went through, and you go through the narrative, he names all the animals, right? And, and he realizes that though each of them had a mate, there's no one for me, all right? I'm kind of left out in this. And so what, what does God do? Eve was now custom made for him in this verse. And notice what happens next. Genesis now takes this example of Adam and Eve and makes it normative for every marriage hereafter. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to what? His wife, and they shall become one flesh. That becomes the normative pattern for all of mankind thereafter. By the way, the one flesh here refers to the sexual union that is first consummated within the marriage that forever unites the two people together. The sexual union is what unites a man and woman in marriage together, a union that is physical, of course, but it's more than physical. It's also spiritual, it's intellectual, and it's emotional. So let me say this, and this is, this is what sets the ground rules for everything that follows in God's revelation. Any sexual relationship then that is outside of this covenant bond of marriage is therefore sinful and in defiance of God's creative order. Let me repeat that so we all understand. Any any sexual relationship outside of this covenant bond of marriage between one man and one woman is therefore sinful and in defiance of God's creative order. So what the Bible presents 
as normative for all marriage is one man and one woman. There, there is no room for two men or two women or one man and two women. So let's ask the question as we go forward. We looked at these passages uh, in Genesis. Um, what do, is this how Jesus understood the Old Testament? Let's turn, turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19... Verses 4 to 6. We read this. He answered, Have you not read, this is uh, Jesus talking, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. If you remember in the context of this this response, this was Jesus' response to a question that the Pharisees asked him. And the, the question was this, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, for any reason? Because that's what some of the, uh, the leaders of that day were teaching. You can divorce your wife for anything. Well, Jesus didn't respond with a yes or no answer, but what does he do? He drew their attention back to Genesis one twenty seven and 2.24 to emphasize a well-known principle that marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman for life. So he answers the, the divorce question, by going back to defining what is marriage. Well, that's what marriage is. A lifelong bond between one man and one woman. So in other words, Jesus affirms this as the normative pattern for every marriage because that's part of the creation ordinance that was established by God. So that's the, that's the biblical principle, that's the biblical teaching on in creation in terms of how he, God created us and how he defines for us then how we are to relate to each other and what defines a biblical marriage. Well, now we come to uh, number two, rebellion against God's design. And the subject then uh, at hand this morning, homosexuality and uh, what the Bible says specifically about homosexuality and how this interacts with what we said so far. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Uh, if you have not done so already. And let's take a look there at uh, verses 24 to 27. Here's what Paul writes in this passage. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
Well, now that we've established God's design in creating us as male and female in his own image, we can now discuss why homosexuality is a departure and a rebellion against him. This passage, by the way, in Romans, it's been a while since Nam preached through chapter 1 here, but this passage in Romans is part of a larger section that starts in verse 18 concerning God's wrath against mankind, clearly demonstrating both their lack of righteousness and, of course, their need of righteousness, right? They have a lack of righteousness and they therefore have a need for it. But the point of this entire section is to point out the fact that mankind's problem isn't a lack of knowledge or truth, since they don't even live up to the truth that has already been revealed to them. They suppress the truth that they know about God through conscience and creation, that's in verse 18, leaving them without any excuse whatsoever. And so instead of worshiping the one true God, what what does the passage say? They turn to idols instead, right? They become a worshiper of the creation rather than the creator. That, my friends, is the is a commentary on our society today. If you could sum up our society, you know, in a phrase, that would be it. We worship the create the creation rather than the creator. They think that they're so wise. This is what the passage goes on to say: that they're so wise in their innovative religious system. But in reality, they're ever so foolish to reject the one true God. You are never so dumb than when you reject the only true God. So how does God respond to such rebellion on, on the part of his creation? Well, I want you to notice an important expression that appears three times in this section of Romans and twice in the passage we're going to look at here in verses 24 and 26. And that is God gave them up. You know, this is a significant expression because it describes God's deliberate judgment upon mankind. Now, what I mean by this is that it represents God's punishment upon man for rejecting him, and that consists of giving him over to the sin that he so desires to do. It is God's what we call judicial abandonment as he removes his restraining influence and he hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. You know, it, it's sort of like, uh, you know, the, the punishment is, is sort of, you know, what you want. Like, let's say if, you know, your, your kid is, you know, eating a, a pound of chocolate, right? And you tell your kid, hey, don't, don't, don't eat a pound of chocolate. Or what I, one of the dumbest things I ever did when I was, uh, I was probably in high school or college, probably high school, I think it was high school, but I had this, this craving for donuts. So there was a, a Winchell's really close to where I lived, and I thought, and my favorite donut of all time was the apple fritter. I still love apple fritters. Uh, my second is cinnamon rolls, right? And so um, I thought, you know what? I'm going to go and eat a dozen donuts. So I go to Winchell's, and I get a dozen donuts, most of them apple fritters and cinnamon rolls, right? Now, by the time I got to the third or fourth one, I probably made, a, a, you know, I found out something that uh, um, probably you guys already know listening to the story is, 
You should never try to eat a dozen donuts in, in one sitting, right? But, but let's say if you're, you have your heart set on it, and you say, well, I'm just going to eat a dozen donuts, and, and your mom says, no, you shouldn't be eating a dozen donuts. My mom wasn't around, so we didn't have this discussion. But, and, and you say, well, no, I want to eat a dozen donuts. No, you really shouldn't. That's not good for you. But I want it so bad. All right, go ahead and eat the dozen donuts, right? You, you realize that the judgment there is letting you do what you want to do because of what's going to happen after you eat those dozen donuts? Well, we can't really talk about that from the pulpit here, but you realize that that's not going to be a good day, right? And that's kind of what, what's going on here is you want to sin so much, the judgment is, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to re- remove my restraining influence so you get to do what you want to do. But the judicial part of it is, it's not just I'm hands off, I'll let you do what you want to do but I'm going to give you a little boost and let you do it all you want. That's what's going on here. So he doesn't just let the boat go. God gives it a push downstream. So what does God give them up to? Well, verse 24 specifies the lust of their heart to impurity. You want to lust so much? I'll give you over to that. Verse 26, dishonorable passions. You want those passions? You got them. And in both of these instances, guess what? Sexual sin is the primary reference. In fact, verse 26 emphasizes that these are passions which bring about dishonor. Now, Paul wants to emphasize the point that there are consequences for rejecting God and that sexual sin is the first consequence of God's judgment. Now notice we aren't left guessing as to what these sexual sins are as the first thing out of the apostle's mouth is a reference in verse 26 to lesbianism and verse 27 to male homosexuality. Now I want you to focus on the language that Paul uses and you've already been prepared for it uh, in, in, in the first part of our message. He says women have exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And then, at that, and, and then that men followed suit by, guess what? Giving up natural relations with women. So when Paul talks about what is natural, he's referring to what things are according to God's creative intent. Well, we just saw what God's creative intent was in Genesis, right? That's what he's referencing. So think those Genesis passages that we just surveyed, and you understand the point that Paul is making. You can't miss the connection, by the way, because verse 23, which we're not going to look at, is based on the language of Genesis 1.26. So this word carries with it the idea of what a created being is by nature, In other words, how we were made. And the scripture makes it very explicit here that homosexuality is contrary to nature. Or to put it another way, it's unnatural. Meaning that it's contrary to the intention of the creator. With those Genesis passages uh, as the background to what Paul says here in verses 26 to 27, it's easy to understand why Paul says that same-sex behavior is contrary to nature. You are committing, by the way, an act of rebellion against God as your creator. 
living in a way that is contrary to how he created you as male and female. Jude 7 uh, makes essentially the same point in its condemnation of homosexuality. In Jude 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued, what? Unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. By the way, this ethic uh, that Paul refers to here, it wasn't exclusive to Christianity. Uh, as uh, this same expression was sometimes, sometimes used in both Greco-Roman and Hellenistic Jewish literature, think Josephus and Philo in the first century, to categorize homosexual behavior as worthy of condemnation. So I, I want to say that up front is that the Christians weren't the only ones saying it. They actually shared the same language in saying it. But uh, again, only the scripture is what, is what is authoritative for us. Paul goes on to explain that such men, in giving up what was natural for what was unnatural, did so with a reckless abandon as they were consumed in passion for one another which the, the New King James translates actually more literally, burned in their lust for one another. The imagery is very vivid because the word means literally that, to set on fire. And it's used metaphorically of the inflamed burning passion of lust. Try as you might to justify these kinds of relationships, But you simply cannot sanctify what God contemns as sinful in and of itself. In fact, that's what a lot of churches are doing that are becoming affirming today. They're trying to sanctify what God has condemned in his word. In fact, he goes on to describe these kinds of illicit relationships as men committing shameless acts with men. You know, this means that the act in and of itself is inherently shameful. And it's always wrong regardless of who's doing it. Now, I I point this out because there are those who try to say that Romans 1 only condemns a certain kind of homosexual behavior. Whether that be pederasty or temple prostitution or unnatural heterosexual, uh, I'm sorry, unnatural homosexual behavior but the fact remains I'll mention some of that a little bit later but the fact remains that this passage doesn't differentiate or qualify behavior I want you to notice that it simply condemns as generically as possible men with men that's what it says the penalty that such violators receive in themselves is probably a reference to the physical and emotional distress that is accompanied by such a lifestyle. Homosexuality has a built-in punishment to it. I mean, it's well documented that those who decide to live this lifestyle pay a high price of both emotional and physical destruction, which is also borne out by the higher-than-usual suicide rate amongst this community. And we don't say that with any kind of joy. We say that with Sadness, right? We don't want to see that kind of thing. Well, 
we've, we've talked about God's design in creation. We've talked about rebellion against God's design. And lastly, we want to talk about what is the solution to all of this. Well, the fact that you're part of this church means that you already know the solution to it. It is the gospel. Let's turn in our Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, Paul presents what should amount to a self-evident truth that the unrighteous are not going to be participants in God's future kingdom. God's future kingdom starts with the millennial kingdom, right? And then it, it morphs into the new heaven and the new earth. This is a self-evident truth, right? This is why he says, don't you know that the unrighteous are not going to inherit that kingdom, that, that eternal kingdom? Well, included in this list of sins and others like them in the Bible are those whose lifestyle is characterized by these sins. In other words, they are unrighteous, not on occasion, not here and there, you know, but these are the categories in which they live. So much so, you could define their very character by these sins. See, it doesn't mean, just so we, we don't get a little bit uh, you know, off-center here, it doesn't mean that a Christian doesn't have the capacity to fall into any of these sins. We can. We sometimes do, okay? So it's not saying, oh man, I committed one of these sins, I'm out of the kingdom, right? That's not what it's saying. We're talking about what characterizes your life. But understand, 2 Corinthians 5.17, because of our new nature in Christ, we cannot and will not permanently and unrepentantly live a lifestyle that is characterized by the unrighteous. You, you get the point? There's a difference between a pattern of righteousness that falls into sin and between someone who just lives in that category of sin as is normal. So those who live in these categories, they demonstrate that they were never part of God's kingdom never having experienced new life in Christ. So think about that message I gave just last month on uh, the new birth, regeneration, and what happens when a person comes to know Christ and how his life changes, not because of who he is, but because of Christ and the work that he is doing within us. So Paul's point is that you shouldn't deceive yourself into thinking that behavior is inconsequential. But as this, these verses point out very clearly, if your life is characteristic of these things, then you have no reason to believe that you are part of God's redeemed community. This is where Paul's important warning, do not be deceived, needs to be taken seriously. He tells you up front, don't be deceived. 
And many people are being deceived today. It's okay. It's all right. God doesn't care about this, right? That's really the irony here, right? Many have ignored Paul's warning. And this has resulted in mass deception. As many are now convinced that sinful behavior is morally acceptable to God and can be sanctified. I'm speaking specifically of those who identify as gay Christians or churches that are gay affirming. God does not and will not sanctify what he condemns as sin in his word and you are deceiving yourself. The very thing that this passage warns against to think that you can flagrantly live contrary to God's word and then just claim to be one of his children as if it's okay. It's not true. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27? What did he say? My sheep hear my, what? Voice, and I know them, and what do they do? And they follow me, right? That's the, that's the, the character of a true sheep. He hears, he listens, he does, he follows. Well, notice what Paul that Paul immediately identifies those who will be excluded from God's kingdom as the sexually immoral. That that word sexually immoral in your ESV, that's a a comprehensive catch-all word. Uh, It's comprehensive in its scope in that it can refer to any and all varieties of unlawful sexual intercourse. Now, when I say unlawful, I'm, I'm talking about outside of marriage as defined in Genesis Uh, in the Genesis passages that we looked at there, Uh, okay? In other words, things such as, you know, premarital sex, that's unlawful sexual intercourse, adultery, right? Homosexuality, bestiality, incest, all of those things can be used by this catch-all word of porneia that, that Paul uses here. Yet, that being said, Paul still identifies several of these sexual sins by name so that there's no misunderstanding. The the ESV translates verse 10 as, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, I want to say, that's not an incorrect uh, translation, but one thing that, that you can't see with this translation is, there are actually two words used by Paul to more specifically define what he's talking about. So let me briefly explain these two distinct but related words. Let me talk about the first one. The main word that is used throughout the New Testament to refer to homosexuality is the Greek word arsenikoitai. This is a compound word in Greek and it conveys the idea of males who sleep with other males. In other words, male homosexual activity. This is uh, borne out by writers, by the way, just subsequent to the New Testament itself. For example, the early church historian Eusebius, he's around 265 to 339, just a couple hundred years after the apostles. Uh, And uh, the Eastern uh, Church Father Chrysostom, he's about 347 to 407, again, just about 400 years later. They both use this word, arsenikoitai, and its derivatives to condemn male homosexual activity without any qualification whatsoever. They even appealed to this very verse that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 6, and they also appeal to 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 10, 
which reads this. I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to talk about it. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, arson of koitai, same word, enslavers, liars, perjurers, so forth. So when the Bible speaks of arsenokoitai, it speaks of a sexual relationship between two men. And it is always condemnatory without qualification. I say this because it's something I I mentioned earlier. So many creative proposals have been uh, put forth to try to soften the blow of these condemnations by saying it only refers to the sin of pederasty, that's one of them. A, a pederasty, if you're not uh, aware of that term, is a consensual relationship between adult males and minor uh, boys. That's a sin that, that almost every culture has seen in the, uh, amongst the uh, ancients, even in, in the Asian culture as well, uh, our Asian cultures here. Okay? Uh, it, was, it was taking place at the, uh, at the time of, uh, of Paul. Okay? Uh, some think, well, that's, it's just that. That's the only thing. Uh, or uh, here's the uh, one that's very popular today. This is only referring to men who had a heterosexual orientation, but they committed homosexual acts. So homosexual acts were sin for them because they were heterosexual men committing them, not homosexual men committing them. Some will say, it's no, it's just male prostitution that's being condemned here. There's all these different ways to get around to explain what's not in the text, okay? That's reading something into the text that isn't there. It's a blanket condemnation in Scripture and, again, I might add, extra-biblical literature as well. This word first appears here, by the way, in written literature, and therefore it's quite likely it's a word that Paul coined. He made this word up himself. Now, how could he have done that? Well, it was actually pretty easy and self-evident to the people who who read Greek because he probably coined it from the reading uh, that came from the Septuagint text. The Septuagint text is the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We're reading from the ESV. That's an English translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, who who did the the, um, apostles and the people living at the time of Christ, what was their ESV? Their ESV was the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And as you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, you could see that both of these passages are condemnatory of homosexuality. Let me read those to you very quickly. Leviticus 18.22 reads this, You shall not lie with the male as with the woman. It is an abomination. By the way, abomination is the strongest word of reprehensible sin that, can, that is possible in the Old Testament. And then Leviticus 20 verse 13 says, If a man lies with the male as he lies with the woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. This was a capital offense. The Greek words that make up the compound arsenokoitai, which if we were in class, I would show you this, they sit in close proximity to one another in the two passages. In fact, in the second passage, arsane and koitain are right next to each other in the Greek text. 
arsenikoitai. So lo and behold, Paul just took the two words and he just put them together and made a compound word, arsenikoitai. That's most likely where this term comes from. And everyone would have recognized it because they were reading it in their, in their Bible. So the word refers, by the way, to both the acts that you do, that you commit, and the orientation of defender, your motives, your desires. Because the Bible never makes a distinction between doing acts and the heart that goes with those acts. They're one and the same. One is more serious than the other, like meaning I could have murder in my heart, right? Like in Matthew 5, and I really want to kill you. Well, you're still guilty of the sin of, of anger. You're murdering in your heart. But what's more serious if I actually go out and kill you? right? That's the more serious. But they're both, they're both the same thing, right? They're both a sin. One is more serious than the other. All right, that's the first word, arsenikoitai. Now, let me just make a disclaimer here. Uh, I'm going to say some things here that are PG-13, maybe bordering on R here. Okay, and I don't mean that to be unnecessarily graphic, but I want to make a point here, and this is what's actually in our Bibles. So I'm going to make this point, okay? The second term that is used in this passage is the Greek word malakoi, and it has the root meaning soft. Now, it can be used to describe a person's clothes, soft clothes. That's, that's meant to be like a, a compliment. Um, or it can be used to refer a person's emotional state. Now, it was often used by the Greeks in a pejorative way, similar to the way that we use the word sissy, Okay? Now, when they applied this word to a boy or to a man, it had the nuance of effeminacy or being effeminate. That's why it's translated that way in the New King James. And later it came to uh, refer to men and boys who would allow themselves to be misused homosexually in the homosexual encounter. In other words, the word connoted passivity and submission in the homosexual encounter. So in contradistinction to arsenikoitai, the first word we we talked about, that word refers to the active male partner in a homosexual encounter. Now, if you think, what in the world is going on here? It's actually not unusual. Many other languages, not just Greek, English too for that matter, have distinct terms for both the active and passive roles in homosexual intercourse. This is why David Garland in his commentary, again, this is a little graphic, but I, I, I'm making a point here. David Garland, in his commentary, has translated arsenikoitai as those males who sexually penetrate males. And then this word, malakoi, as those males who are penetrated sexually by males. So, in Philo's writings, he used the word to describe youths who, distru- who d- dress themselves up like women to connote passivity in the homosexual encounter. This is also uh, the way that Aristotle used the word in one of his uh, writings as well. And so in many of the instances that are in the literature, younger men would sell themselves to older men as their mistresses. And so I say all of that not to be overly graphic, but to make the point. The presence of both of these words in our Bibles should make it clear to anyone who is looking to see what the Bible says that this is exactly what Paul is referring to. Homosexuality as a whole, 
it's comprehensive. You can't miss it if you just see what's actually there and are not trying to explain it away. Well, with the brief amount of time that I've had to address this issue, I think you could see why homosexuality is a sin uh, and why we must speak out against it as such. Now, with that said, that doesn't mean that homosexuals are beyond hope or that we hate them and we want nothing to do with them and we're going to mistreat them, right, and, and, and do bad things to them. No. Every one of us were sinners of a different stripe before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want to end on a high note, and that is one of holding out hope to those who are enslaved to this type of sin. Look at verse 11. Notice what Paul says there in verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The world is telling you that your same-sex desires are fixed. There's nothing that anyone could do or should do to change them, even if you want to. That's no good. The gospel says otherwise. There were those in the Corinthian church who used to be enslaved to homosexual sin, but after Christ saved them, That lifestyle was a thing of the past. It doesn't mean that they never struggled with it anymore. It doesn't mean that those feelings entirely left forever. But it did mean a change had taken place and that that lifestyle was behind them. How did that happen? God washed away their sin, set them apart unto himself for holy living, and then he declared them righteous righteous in Christ through his Holy Spirit. As we talked about last month, the new birth resulted in a transformed life, one that broke the power of sin's rule over them. Look, you might feel like you're trapped, you know, in your current lifestyle if, if this uh, addresses anyone um, who's visiting with us or, you know, who are hearing this online or whatever. You might feel like you're trapped in your current lifestyle and that there's nothing you could do uh, to free yourself from it. And you know what? You might be right. There might be nothing you can do to free yourself from it. But to you, I would hold out the hope of the gospel that Jesus Christ is greater than sin's power over you. And you know that if you would just repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of all of your sin, not only will he do that, but he will break sin's power It's hold over you as well. This is what happened to some of the Corinthians who were trapped in the sin as they were sanctified and justified by Christ. This latter term emphasizes the fact that they now had a right standing before the Father. They were now declared righteous because of their faith in Christ and not because of anything that they themselves had done. God's grace doesn't just forgive and save you, though it does that, and that's, that's glorious, but it also transforms your very nature, who you are at your, at, at your core of your being, your heart. God doesn't just save sinners and leave them as they are. No, he grants sonship so that he will be and act like a child of God. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ means such were some of you. Such were me. Regardless of the sin that now enslaves you, that is a thing of the past. This is the transforming power, transforming power of the gospel. And you can experience it too by turning away from what you trust in and placing all your faith in Jesus Christ as both your Savior and your Lord. You know, we don't say all these things because we, we, we hate homosexuals, right? We say it because it's the truth. And out of love, we warn all of you uh, and call you to experience the love of Christ. I can't think of anything that is more heinous than to just take sinners in this, in this lifestyle and then welcome them in the church and say, you're fine as you are. You don't, you don't need the gospel. You don't need to change. Stay as you are and affirm them in their sin all their way to hell. That is not loving. That is, that is not what we are called to do. And again, I'm focusing on that sin, but I'm talking about any sin in general. To call, to call out in love and say, look, there's a better way. Christ can change you. You won't be able to change yourself, but Christ can change you through the power, his power. It will, it will transform you. The, th- the threat of arresting or jailing a believer for simply exercising our faith and saying what the Bible says about sin, that is egregious, but it's here. Persecution isn't coming. Persecution is here. But uh, having said that, doesn't God's word promise that there will be persecution for the believer? How about 2 Timothy 3.12 that says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. Not might be, not could be, will be persecuted. Well, here it is. And here's your chance. Do we have the courage to be the church and to be God's faithful representatives? Where can people go to hear God's word And to hear what he has to say without compromise. Well, we want to be that place, right? We won't allow the government or anyone else to force us to deny or suppress what our God teaches. But we will defend him and his word regardless of what it costs us. And it might. But that's what we're at today. And that's why... We had this uh, special Sunday in solidarity with other Bible churches around the world to preach on what biblical sexual morality is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and we, we thank you for that your truth is very clear and we are not confused by it. Our world is and they are living in delusion, unfortunately, Lord. And we, uh, we hold out hope, the hope of the gospel to a world that is lost And pray for them. We know that there are many that have been saved ever since Paul wrote this out of these kinds of lifestyles. And we pray that many more are to follow and will be our brothers and sisters in this church. And we can join hands with them and celebrate what Christ has done for them in bringing them out of darkness into your marvelous light. Give you thanks for all of it as we pray this morning in Jesus' name.